Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, April 5th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we're going to take a look at the latest news regarding Upstart. The Coinbase IPO date is set. We'll chat a little bit more about SPACs, including a listener question regarding a recent SPAC opportunity in the fintech space. Joining me this week, it's Certified Financial Planner, and he looks like he's ready for Masters Week, folks. It's Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Everyone assumes I'm a golf guy. Um, <laughs> that's not, that, that's not the case. I, I've, I've played probably three times in my life. Uh, uh, why do they assume you're a golf guy, do you think? Because I live in South Carolina, I guess. Well, I mean, you know, that's probably a, probably a fair leap. I mean, having grown up in South Carolina, I can tell you there's a lot of golf to be played down there, and that was uh, that was a great place to grow up. That's for sure. I was I grew up in Charleston, got to play a lot of golf down there in Charleston, Mount Pleasant. So, um, uh, you know, I understand the leap at least. But hey, once <laughs> once we once we find ourselves in the same place again, maybe we'll we'll go play some golf or maybe some putt putt. I don't know something. I will I will play gladly play around to golf once <laughs> once we can meet up again. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. I look forward to it. Uh Matt, we wanted to kick this week off talking a little bit about a company that you and I dug into uh not all that long ago. So travel back in time with me, Matt, just a few months, okay? Back to January eleventh of this year. Uh, where we actually talked about the company Upstart uh, on this show. Uh, we were talking about the fact that Upstart had just gone public. Uh, the stock had performed very well up to that point. Uh, if you look at year-to-date now, Upstart shares are up almost 250%. Um, and, and, and just I'm going to pull a quote from you from that show back in January, because I think, it was a, I think it was the right thing. I think it was the right observation. We were talking about the risks with a business like this, and and you said, and I quote, I gotta believe the biggest risk, it's not just valuation, it's got to maintain its growth. And there's a huge element of competition risk in this space. And and I think in this world of these so many companies out there trading at 40 times sales, it seems like that's the norm now with these businesses that that have yet to, to really uh, bring any meaningful profits uh to, to the to the uh, to the income statement. It does seem like uh, with upstart it wasn't just valuation. They have to really justify that valuation with the growth rates. It seems, to this point at least, it seems like it's 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 maintaining that burden of proof, right? I mean, I'm not sure. What do you, what do you feel like is is the uh, impetus behind this uh, behind this this performance here so far with Upstart? Well, for, for starters, the earnings report that they recently issued looked great. That wasn't the number one reason that the stock has, like you said, more than tripled year to date. Uh, but the numbers are worth mentioning. Uh, revenue handily beat expectations. Um, I mean, they are their revenue was about eighty-seven million dollars. That was about thirteen million more than analysts were calling for. Um, their margins expanded um, year over year. That revenue number was up forty percent. They're calling for one hundred fifteen percent revenue growth in twenty twenty one. Um, you know, they grew 40% with the pandemic's effects. So that's a pretty impressive, you know, year. 
But the real story was that they planned to they're they're acquiring a company called Prodigy Software. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, they, not. They provide an automotive shopping experience. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, you said correctly that last time we talked about them, I mentioned how competitive the personal lending space is. The auto lending space is not nearly as competitive, especially the online side of it. Um, you know, every company is doing personal loans these days. It seems there's I could I could probably ramble off a list of like twenty different fintech companies making personal loans. I can't really ramble off a list of that many companies that make auto loans other than the traditional banks. If I couldn't name a traditional bank, I don't really know where I would start that list. So Prodigy is a, a company that provides kind of a shopping experience for consumers in in dealerships, but like a high-tech version of it. So the idea is that, ups, that this acquisition will really catapult Upstart into the auto lending space, which is a huge untapped market. Um, you know, the, the, the auto lending market is just begging to be disrupted. And like you said, so the personal personal loan market, about 300 billion in size, a lot of competition in the fintech space. The auto lending market, $1.4 trillion, not a lot of competition in the fintech space. There aren't many companies trying to do auto lending better than the establishment. Um, so that's really what the market is so excited about here. Um, this really gets their lending their proprietary AI-based lending technology into thousands of dealerships across the country. Um, so it really can, you know, jumpstart, upstarts uh, auto lending business. Yeah. And I mean, why do you think that is that the, the, the auto, the auto market is, is so different? I mean, I, it, it seems to me, I mean, I guess the last time I took out an auto loan was, um. Well, I mean, it was I bought an Explorer probably five, close to, yeah, like five and a half years ago or something. And the dealership gave me 0% financing, Uh, you know, and that was it, period. It was like, well, okay, duh. I'm not going to find a, a rate better than that unless they're willing to actually give me money. But I guess, I mean, I, why do you feel like the, the auto market is is so open for that competition is that the nature of what they're selling is it the idea that this thing that you're buying i mean once you drive it off the lot it loses so much value uh, just in that transfer of ownership is it an asset thing or i mean it's just is it are, are the rates not did they not make it as attractive an opportunity because of the competition that's out there from the dealerships in, in the in the the car companies themselves well that is a lot of it like um like you said you got zero percent financing when you bought your car the legacy lenders, which I would include, you know, traditional banks like Wells Fargo, who my auto loans through, and the actual car companies that have financing arms, they do a really great job of financing for the prime borrowers. Um, I don't know Jason's credit score, but I assume it's pretty good. It's pretty uh, good. <laughs> so, so the 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 legacy lenders do a great job with guys like Jason. They don't do a great job with subprime borrowers, which is Upstart's bread and butter for its personal lending business. The average interest rate for a borrower with, say, a 600 credit score is in like the 18 19% ballpark on an auto loan. And it's because the, the traditional lenders really don't know how to analyze risk in that side of the market. Upstart has proven that it's really good at analyzing subprime risk in the personal lending market. They they cut down on bank losses. They you know, approve more applicants than otherwise would without increasing losses. Um, so if they can translate that to the auto industry, 
which a lot, like even the fintech lenders don't know how to tackle the subprime market. So that's really where Upstart's trying to add value. And if they can do that with the auto industry, I mean, that's a big chunk of that $1.4 trillion auto market that is really not being well served. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think that uh, you know, going back to the conversation that we had in January, I mean, you noted that, that one of their biggest competitive advantages, if not the biggest, it was really the proprietary technology. I mean, this, this AI that allows them to assess risk and uh, ultimately make better loans, right? I mean, it's very, very similar to what we talk about with companies like Square, um, I think PayPal to an extent now. I mean, a lot of these companies are doing a better job of, of utilizing data um, in order to make better financial decisions, underwriting decisions when it comes to lending. And I think we're seeing the same thing uh, with with really well-run insurers, too. Uh, I guess it kind of goes back to that idea that, that data is the new oil, as, as they've said, right? I mean, it really is becoming perhaps the most important com- commodity around around the globe at this point because you can do so much with it. Yeah, and I mean, as Upstart gets bigger and bigger, their competitive advantage there just gets better and better. I mean, the more data they have, the better they'll be able to assess risk, make... Because I mean, if a customer has, say, you know, defaulted on an auto loan six years ago, and things have changed in their situation. They got a new job. They, you know, got out of debt, things like that. It's really tough to quantify that by just looking at the FICO score, which is what most auto lenders do. I mean, Upstart uses a ton of data points to really kind of get a big picture view and really accurately predict who's going to default on their loans. And and so far, it's 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 working. It's a very promising system. So like you said, data is, is king and Upstart they're they're building a data library and they have a really big head start over anyone else who wants to join the space. Well, we have talked a lot about Coinbase on this show over the past several months. Uh, Coinbase looking to go public here, and we've now got a bit of a uh, clearer picture as to when that's going to happen. Matt, tell us the latest news here in regard to Coinbase's impending IPO. So Coinbase got SEC approval to to start their direct listing on April 14th. So, um, a couple uh, about a week and a half from when we're recording this, um, the SEC has approved that, like I said, they're doing a direct listing, meaning they're selling shares directly to the public, not going through underwriters and stuff like that. Uh, we do know that their ticker symbol will be COIN, C-O-I-N. Pretty easy to remember. Um, they are going to sell 115 million shares in their IPO. The latest price per share on the private market was about $343. So that means they're going to raise about $5 billion in their IPO. Or I'm sorry, they're they're selling about um, $5 billion worth of existing shares. They're not actually raising the money. Um, based on that share price, which isn't an official price on where it's actually going to start trading, but that's what they're going to use to set the day one reference price. Um the, the private market valuation is about $68 billion. So Coinbase had a phenomenal year in 2020. They made a, they, they had a nice, pro, they're profitable. They made a, a little over $300 million. Wait, wait, rev- wait, 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 hold on. There's an IPO that's getting ready to hit and, and they actually make money? I mean, this right. is, this is, this is. This is this is new territory. <laughs> What's going on here, Matt? So Come on. They, ma- they made money, great growth, uh, $1.2 billion in revenue last year. 
Wow. But I would put a big asterisk on that because what happened with Bitcoin last year? Bitcoin is trading right now for about 10 times where it was a year ago. When you get an exchange that transaction a certain asset and that asset you know grows tenfold in a year, of course the company's going to make money. <laughs> Coinbase wasn't profitable before Bitcoin started going crazy. Gotcha. So okay. I would, you know, and it's kind of like this wave of mortgage lenders we've seen go public. I mean, remember we've talked several times on the show about how refinancing volume has you know doubled or tripled from from year ago at, at certain points during the pandemic. You know, the, the numbers look great right now because conditions are ideal for mortgage lenders, so they're all going public. Um, the same thing could be said here. Um, we, we already saw eToro, um, a, a fellow cryptocurrency exchange, is going public through a SPAC merger. Um, Coinbase is going public through direct listing. They would not have gotten a $68 billion valuation a year ago. Um, the question is, are these higher Bitcoin prices and more importantly, the higher interest in Bitcoin, is that here to stay or is it going to pull back over the next year or two as you know the market kind of stabilizes? Because right now the market in cryptocurrencies is kind of all over the place. Um, so if you believe higher volumes are here to stay, and if you're a believer that Bitcoin could be, you know, half a million dollars, a million dollars someday, which a lot of people are, Coinbase at $68 billion could be cheap. Um, if you think Bitcoin is going to be a mainstream form of payment and people are going to need a place to buy it, Coinbase could be cheap at its current valuation. So there's, it, it really depends on what, what direction the cryptocurrency market takes as to whether that $68 billion figure is cheap or expensive. Do you feel like with businesses that direct list, I mean, obviously the, the, the direct listing, they're not bringing in that capital. I mean, they're not bringing in that, they're not raising that money in issuing new shares, right? I mean, is that, do you feel like that, do you feel like that puts them, is, is that a, a position of strength to you? I mean, is that something where you look at that and say, well, a direct listing, is that a reason for investors to feel like maybe that is a bit of a stronger uh, competitive position or a company that's in a, a stronger position one way or the other versus companies that may not necessarily choose that route? Usually, one of the biggest differences between a direct listing and IPO from a company's point of view is that they're not raising any capital. So usually they're used by companies that have a ton of working capital and don't really need to go through the traditional IPO process to raise money. Um, Slack is a good example of a company that went public through a direct listing that had a ton of money on the books. Um, so one thing I will say is, and, and I'm really interested in, is that Coinbase said they will release preliminary first quarter results tomorrow, uh, April the 6th, at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time on their investor relations website. Uh-huh. So that's kind of rare. That kind of tells me that they're they're happy with what they're going to show. <laughs> yeah, um, it does seem. <laughs> it, you know, companies that are about to go public don't usually disclose more information than they have to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I'm, I'm curious to see what they are. I'll be, I'll be looking at that, and if, if it's anything worth noting, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that next Monday. Absolutely, yeah. That'll be something to keep an eye on. I'll be looking forward to checking that out myself. But, I mean, in, in the first quarter, it seemed like Bitcoin hit a new high every day. Yeah. Or most days, at least. So I want to see how that translated to Coinbase's bottom line. That's that's something that's worth keeping an eye on for sure. I mean, it's 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 been a volatile period to to say the least. Um, 
And yeah, it's always worth knowing. I mean, the, the different levers that, that control how money flow, flows through these businesses. Clearly, uh, clearly, with a company like Coinbase, uh, Bitcoin is going to be a key part of the thesis, no doubt. Um, Matt, it, it feels to me, it feels to me like the SPAC craze has slowed down a good bit. Is that just me? It came to a crashing halt. I haven't, I haven't seen. I mean, there have been no headlines. I mean, it, it just it was for for a month or two. It was like it was just spacks, spacks, spacks. But you could hear it was nothing but spacks twenty four seven. That really seems to have all but died down. What's going on? Well, let me read you a couple of data points here. Just doing a, a quick look on my TD Ameritrade account before we jumped on here. There are no new spac IPOs scheduled for this week. There was one that went public last week. The week ending, or I'm sorry, the week of March 15th, there were 24. The week of March 8th, there were 23. And the week of March 1st, there were 36. That went down to one last week and zero this week so far. So that's why I say it didn't just kind of slow down. It kind of came to a screeching halt. Um, and the, it just really, and not just the number, the price action really shows that the market's kind of been flooded with these. Um, if I look at those, so if I add those together, let me do a quick count. I'm I'm sort of a math guy. Um, <laughs> you know, roughly 75 SPACs went public in in March, and out of those, most of them are trading at or below their net asset value, which was ten dollars a share. That's what SPACs go public for. The highest I saw was ten dollars and ten cents. So not only are they really not getting as as much investor attention and you know going public as frequently. They're not trading at these premiums we saw. If you remember, some of them were trading at huge premiums before they even had a deal. And those have really cooled off. Um, th just We did our SPAC series recently, so just to kind of name a few from there. Um, the two uh, Chamath SPACs that have not find deals, found deals yet, IPOD and IPOF, are both down 40% from their, 52, from their recent highs. Um, they didn't have deals then. They don't have deals now. But investors, it's just really cooled off. They're not trading for as big of a premium anymore. They were trading for $17 or $18. Um, now they're trading for about $11. Um, and remember, they they have $10 to share in assets sitting in a trust account. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it, 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 at some point, if they don't find that deal to bring to the market, I mean, you you get that ten dollars back ultimately, right? I mean, that's something. That's that's the that's the baseline, right? So like the the premium has like just evaporated here. Um, Bill Ackman's Pershing Square. That's the one that people are really optimistic about. That's down twenty seven percent from its highs. Um, even the ones that the deals were announced have cooled off. Um, we've talked we talked about Lucid um, uh, Churchill Capital Four is the one taking Lucid public. That's down 64% from before it announced the, the deal. Um, the 23andMe, uh, Virgin Virgin Group acquisition, VG acquisition, um, down 44% since since the deal was announced. Um, SoFi, the one that we talked about and we really like, um, down 40% from its highs. So it's not just we've, we've seen the number of SPACs going public go down. We've seen the premium that new SPACs are trading for completely evaporate. And we've seen even the ones that the market are is really have, have really given headlines to over the past month or so, they're really cooled off as well. So it's really it seems like there's still over 300 specs in the market looking for targets. And so there's billions and billions of dollars of capital waiting for companies to take public. 
So it's it's really looks like the market's just been flooded and it just caught up to it really fast. Yeah, and I wonder too when you when you think about these SPACs and, and the the nature of so many of these businesses, they they come public so much earlier than they normally would. In many cases, pre revenue or or very very modest amounts of revenue. I mean, twenty thirty million dollars. I'm you're talking very modest amounts. I mean, I so it's, it's it's with SPACs, it really does seem like it's less about fundamentals and more about the psychology behind it, the excitement, the potential, the growth, right? Just as you were saying with Upstart, for example, really that growth, they need to make sure they, they can show that growth that really backs that valuation. So it, to me, I wonder with SPACs, as we start to reopen more fully, as people start going back to work uh, as, as they did before, right? I mean, we be, we're becoming a little bit less virtually tied and a little bit more real-world based and kind of out doing other things now. I wonder if maybe that psychology starts to wear off a little bit, that interest starts to wear off a little bit, just because, first off, you said so many have already come to market. I mean, there's only so many good ideas out there to begin with. But then also, maybe people aren't looking and listening to this stuff. They aren't looking at this stuff and listening to it like 24-7, as maybe a lot of people have been over the past year. Yeah, just, I mean, at some point, the appetite for speculation starts to roll to run out. Yeah, um, you that's think well just, put. That's a good way to put it. I mean, think of some of the more speculative stocks, even the, even the ones that have really good businesses. Like I, I would say, like a Tesla at its valuation. Um, you know, companies with good businesses but really trade on momentum. They've really reversed course over the last few weeks, and you're just seeing that really happening at an, even a, ma- a more magnified level in the SPAC market because they're even more speculative. Um, and you're just kind of seeing this kind of you know, the market doesn't have unlimited money to speculate with is kind of what we're what we're seeing here, and, that, and it's really playing out in the SPAC market. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, I I, it, I I would it seems like that 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 sort of unlimited money or the you know the money that was it was being thrown around um, it seems like that might be drying up here too. I mean, I I don't know the wool. We'll necessarily see the floodgates quite as open here as things start to start to improve uh, in, in regard to the overall economy. Um, well, speaking of SPACs, and uh, you know, I just said that and figured maybe that would make a good podcast title. Man, we should we should get together after we get done. But speaking of SPACs, that could that could be a show. We could do, we could do a show like that. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but speaking of SPACs. Uh, we we had a question from a listener a little while back at Jeffrey Leaf uh, on Twitter, and and this was this was back uh, a few months ago. But Jeffrey asked if any ideas on PaySafe. I'd love to hear a deep dive or thoughts. And this is a company PaySafe that just came to the public markets via SPAC, and this is. I, the best way to define it, the best way to describe it, is it's a fintech company. Um, and honestly, Matt, <laughs> to me, if SPACs are if we're getting saturated with SPACs. I'm starting to feel the same way about fintech. I'm starting to wonder what's differentiating a lot of these businesses because a lot of them are they kind of say they do the same thing, right? PaySafe says they're a leading specialized payments platform with a two-sided consumer and merchant network. Hey, that sounds like Square, whose core purpose is to enable businesses and consumers around the world to connect and transact seamlessly through payment processing. That, that last mean, line sounds very very familiar. I think that's the exact line uh, Payoneer used when when they were on the show not long ago. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, that's not to take anything away from them, okay? I'm not saying they don't do that. I'm not saying they don't do it well. But when you have a lot of these companies that are kind of doing the same thing, you have to try to make sense of them and figure out which ones are going to be the better opportunities. Uh, but but you've had the chance to dig in a little bit to pay safe. Um, let's take a big picture look at this business, understanding that it is a fintech, a payment processing company. Uh, what are some of the takeaways from pay safe what do you feel like listeners should know about this business well first of all before i, I said something a little negative about pay in a minute ago um, <laughs> that they used to align but i think but, you were it, just comparing the two well no <laughs> it, similarities. It, but, but the the, the kind of continuation of that is the, to you have to kind of read between the lines to figure out what they do that they're really good at in pay in case it was cross-border payments if you remember from that interview um they do they do the uh, international payments a lot better than everyone else. But PaySafe, one of the things that they do really well is gaming payments, online gaming. They are the global leader uh-huh. in online gaming payments. Well, that's a that's a little bit more clear. I mean, that's a massive market. Right. That's a hu- And it's a huge growth market right now because the, the trend is clearly toward legalized gaming. Or, uh, DraftKings, for example, is one of their, is one of their um, customers. Uh, William Hill, I don't know if you're familiar with them. That's the sportsbook company that Caesars just bought. Um, they're they're a PaySafe company. PaySafe did, uh, let me see, $92 billion of annual of payment volume in 2020. So it's not a tiny operation. They're the number two global leader in digital wallets, by the way. So they there's a few things that they do really well, which is really key to identify when you're looking at a fintech. Like when we're, you mentioned Square, I can name like three or four things that Square does better than the other fintechs. Um, I mean, the in-person payments, no one comes close to Square, in, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, Spotify, Fortnite, they're two other big uh, customers of PaySafe. Um, one thing I like about them, unlike a lot of the SPACs, they have very realistic projections. <laughs> um, and, and they're a long-established company, unlike a lot of these other SPACs. They started in 96, um, so they've been doing online payments for a long time, 25 years now. Um, if you remember a product called NetTeller. Um, I do remember that. That, 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 was a, that was a PaySafe product. Huh. Um, so they've been around for a long time, um, and they're, they were taken public by a SPAC led by Bill Foley, um, who is has a fantastic track record of not only investing in, but adding value to financial services companies uh fis fidelity information services that was one of his investments he invested in in 2003 and the stock's up something like 35x since then um margin expansion he's really like helped out with his expertise and just gotten them 1800 basis points of margin expansion since that time just really kind of adds value to all these fintechs there's a, a long list on on his website of companies that he's really done a great job of adding value to so I like this merger. Uh, ticker symbol is PSFE, by the way. Now it's actually trading under its own ticker symbol since the merger was completed. Um, so they the merger was completed just a few days ago. Um, it started trading under its new symbol on March 31st. Um, really impressive company. I like that they're the, a leader in a couple of really key growth markets. Um, I don't know. What do you make of PaySafe? Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly is. It certainly is a bit more clear understanding that focus on on the gaming uh, market, and and I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's a tremendous opportunity there, uh, particularly as you see sports betting becoming um, 
legalized in more and more places. I mean, I, I think that that's that ball is going to continue rolling in that direction, right? I don't think that's something that is going to change. And so, for a business that number one has been around for that long, uh, you feel like not only do they have expertise in really the market that they are pursuing. Um, but they've had a lot of experience in building products and services as this payment space has evolved, right? I mean, they're not building something new based on on the capabilities that technology affords us today. They've been, they've been following this all along the way. So to me, I mean, that I I certainly see that as a plus. And and then in regard to Bill Foley, I mean, I the only the only knowledge I have of of him is through what I've read through the the investor deck in in investigating this this SPAC and it certainly seems like he has uh, quite the track record in in helping companies exploit their true value so to me it it seems I mean I'm at least cautiously optimistic <laughs> Yeah, and with with any fintech, I tend to think of experience as a much bigger competitive advantage than longstanding industries have. You know, um, if if someone has twenty five years of fintech experience, who else has that? Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> even if you think of some of the big fintechs, the most experienced person at Square has eleven years of experience. I mean, it, the company just hasn't been around that long. So I mean, when you look at some of these companies that, that, that with fintechs, especially experience really is very valuable no like no one's been doing payment processing longer than paysafe online um or if they, if there are it's very very close so you gotta i gotta think of that as a, a big competitive advantage uh, that they've really like you said participated in the whole evolution of the space well it really does uh it does feel like there's an opportunity there and that'll be a fun one to keep an eye on uh, another Another company for uh, our radar here for our show, uh, clearly given given its financials focus. So, uh, so we'll continue to, to keep PaySafe on the radar and uh, follow that uh, as as earnings uh, as earnings season comes around. Um, but Matt, I think that is going to do it for us this week. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to jump on the show today and uh, dig into PaySafe and and. Uh, talk a little bit more about what you've been seeing with Upstart there. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining. Of course. Always fun to join you. All right. Well, folks, remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.